We're in week four of a sermon series that has been mentioned earlier today. On It's called Worship and the Psalms. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at various psalms, Psalm 90, Psalm 23, Psalm 63 as well. And then today, Psalm 34, which Krista and Levi read a little while ago. And uh, the way we came about uh, with the sermon series is that there is a, an album by Shane and Shane where they've taken all of these psalms and they've put them to new music. And so I thought, man, what a fun little sermon series to have each of those songs played and, uh, and then to sort of um, do some light exegesis on those passages. And so today we're actually going to cover Psalm 34 and Jordan and the rest of the crew is going to go ahead and, in a moment after I pray and uh, introduce that Shane and Shane hymn. And then we're actually going to be singing it as a congregation following the sermon today. But before we begin, and I turn things over to them, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you so much for calling us together. Um, I thank you not only for calling us together, calling us out, but giving us the ability to stand before you, the living God. Father, knowing that for those of us who seek our refuge in you, that we find mercy and grace because of your kindness, Father, and because of uh, the death and the resurrection of your son Jesus on our behalf. And so, Father, we pray all these things today in the name of your son Jesus Christ. Amen. So the question I think that we always need to ask when we look at a passage of Scripture, in fact, probably the first question, is what's the context of a particular passage of Scripture? We don't always have that context, especially as it regards the Psalms, but interestingly, in terms of Psalm 34, we do actually have the context um, of this psalm that David wrote. If you remember, the title of Psalm 34 is, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. We read about this story in 1 Samuel 21. And so if you guys are familiar with your Old Testament in 1 Samuel 21, in the wake of David defeating Goliath, you guys remember that story, the sitting Israelite king, Saul, becomes jealous of David and he sets out to kill him. You might remember those stories. Fortunately, Saul's son, Jonathan, and David are good friends, and Jonathan helps David to escape. Ultimately, David fled into Philistine territory. It was the only place he could go where he thought, surely they're not going to come find me here. And when he was in this Philistine territory, he's identified by some of the Philistine soldiers who report him to the Philistine king, whose name is Achish. Now, if you remember earlier, it said um, he changed his behavior before Abimelech. Abimelech is the title of the king. Achish is the name of the king. And so fearing that the king, King Achish, would kill him, David pretends to be insane, and the Philistine king lets him live. Now, admittedly, this is not David's finest hour. There are several other things in the story that point out that David isn't exactly squeaky clean uh, in his behavior, but God still delivers him not only from the hand of Saul, but also from the hand of the Philistines as well. That's the backdrop for Psalm 34. David is running for his life. He prays to God, and God answers and delivers him. Prior to the writing of the psalm, David's life is threatened at every turn. He's attacked not only by his enemies, but he's attacked by who are supposed to be his friends. And it's unlikely that any of us in this room have had a spear thrown at us like David had when Saul attacked him. It's unlikely that we've been in danger of being thrown into a prison or being executed by a foreign ruler. That's not probably been happening to any of us. It is, however, likely that some of us in this room have experienced health scares. It is entirely likely that there are, you know, maybe you're on shaky ground with an unethical boss. 
Maybe you have felt the pressures of culture pressing down upon you and maybe entering into your family in ways that threaten to destroy your home and your family. I can't promise that God will show up in exactly the way that you want and will deliver you in exactly the way that you want. But what I will do is I will choose to echo God's word, David's words in verse 18, where he says this about those of us who find our refuge in him. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So the question is, what can we take away from the psalm? Several different things. The first is this, in the wake of his deliverance, David invites us to praise the Lord. Look at verses one through four. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. So biblical scholars who studied these passages and this psalm in particular point out that this psalm structure isn't normal. It's not usual. Usually the psalmist begins with a problem and then ends with praise. But in this case, the psalmist begins with praise. And in verse, in these four verses, he uses at least five praise-related themes or praise-related words to invite us to join him in praising God. First, he tells us to bless the Lord at all times. Bless the Lord at all times. When we think about blessing someone or about someone being blessed, we think about some action that is given to them that strengthens them or encourages them or gives them something that they need. In other words, they benefit from being blessed. Uh, But the question is, how can that be true when it comes to God? He doesn't really need anything from us. So what does it mean to bless the Lord? According to certain biblical scholars, Blessing the Lord means this. It means to offer an exclamation of gratitude and admiration. And then secondly, to offer an expression of praising thankfulness. So embedded in both of those definitions by various biblical scholars is this idea of gratitude, this idea of thankfulness. Let me give you a quick example. Um, I love food. I really, really, really love food. Um, In fact, you know, whenever you read the story of Esau selling his birthright for a pot of stew, most people read that story and they think, that's crazy. Nobody would ever do that. And I read that story and I'm like, yeah, I get it. Because on Sunday, if we have sort of been delayed after church, it doesn't matter what kind of diet that I'm on. uh, If we go to some restaurant, inevitably, if I'm hungry, all of my self-control and willpower goes out the window. I love food so much that when Krista makes dinner, I oftentimes will effusively say, thank you so much. That was so good. And somewhere in my economy, sort of uh, inside my emotional economy, food isn't just about food. It's also about love. And so I've often said, I think there needs to be a book called The Six Love Languages. And The Six Love Language is actually bacon. It's right after acts of service. And so again, the idea here is that when Krista makes dinner, I bless her. I say, thank you so much. That was so good. Thank you so much. It's kind of embarrassing sometimes how I act. But that's the energy and that's the idea behind blessing the Lord. What David is saying is he's saying, thank you so much, God. Thank you for protecting me from Saul. Thank you for protecting me from the Philistines. Thank you for protecting me from Goliath. Thank you so much for delivering me. And he invites us to join him in blessing the Lord. David then goes on to use even more of these words to invite us to praise. He uses the word halal in the second half of verse one. That word actually means a hymn 
of praise. And so he's inviting us to praise God in song, to join in singing together. He then says his soul boasts in the Lord. He invites us to brag upon his God. He then uses the word magnify, and that Hebrew word means exactly that. It means to make God's name so big that everyone can see it from far away. We're invited to make God big along with David. And then he invites us to go on a little bit further and to exalt or exalt the Lord, which means to lift the Lord up. He invites us to lift up God's name in such a way so that everyone can see who he is and everyone can see what he's done. He piles all of these words on top of one another in order to invite us to join with him in praising the God who has answered his prayer and who has delivered him. And so the question for those of us in this room this morning is, has God answered your prayers? Maybe not all of them, but has God answered a prayer? Has God delivered you? Has he heard your cry? Most of us in this room this morning are here because God has shown up in any number of ways and has indeed delivered us. And if that's true, then I would encourage you and I would invite you to join along with David in exalting, magnifying, boasting, blessing, and praising the name of the Lord. What else do we see in this psalm? The second thing we see is that in the wake of David's deliverance, he invites us to revere or honor the Lord. Look at verses 7 through 11. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So the first thing you may notice here in these verses is the word fear is used any number of times. It could be argued that it's actually a central theme of this passage. And the fear of the Lord is actually very common throughout Scripture. Proverbs, if you remember, begins by reminding us The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This would be the equivalent to a river guide. If you guys have ever been uh, rafting on the Nantahala or you've ever been to the Okoe, you know that one of the things that the guide begins by doing is telling the people who are getting ready to go rafting to respect the power of this raging river. Jesus, of course, tells his disciples, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In a sense, Jesus is saying, when you see God in his power, when you see him in his glory, you'll be much, much less afraid of any human being. Whenever I think about this verse, I'm reminded of the inscription upon John Mayer's uh, grave in Westminster Abbey, which reads, he feared man so little because he feared God so much. He feared man so little because he feared God so much. I pray that one day those words might be said about me, but I'm a recovering coward. I'm simply moving in that direction. So the question is, how do we reconcile these statements with 1 John 4.18? 1 John 4.18 says this, says there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And the answer is that the Bible uses fear in a couple of different ways. First John, that passage that I just read, uh, is speaking about judgment and condemnation. So it's talking about those particular things. 
And those who trust in God, those who trust in Christ alone, don't need to fear judgment, don't need to fear condemnation. On the other hand, all people would do well to respect God's power in the same way that we might respect the power of a storm, a hurricane, or of the open sea. Tim Keller addresses this idea of the fear of the Lord in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. The quote will be on the screen. He says this, obviously to be in the fear of the Lord is not to be scared of the Lord, even though the Hebrew word has overtones of respect and awe. Fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. That is why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. Fearing him means bowing before him out of amazement at his glory and his beauty. You intuitively understand exactly what that means. You've stood at the top of uh, one of the rocky mountains. You have stood on the edge of the ocean. You stood and looked at the night sky. You've been filled with awe. That's what this means. David tells us to fear the Lord, but then he goes a little bit further and he tells us why to fear the Lord. In verse 7, he says this, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Let me read that one more time. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. If you think about it, it's really quite beautiful imagery. Imagine camping out in the woods or being in the jungle or maybe in a desert by yourself. And then imagine being there at night and bears or wolves or jaguars or jackals, or at least you see sort of eyes out in the the darkness and the firelight. They're around the perimeter of wherever it is that you've set up your camp. And then as soon as the fire dies down and your eyelids begin to droop, you fear that these wild animals are going to rush in upon you. But now imagine that you're in that jungle or in that desert, but you're not alone, that someone is with you, protecting you putting himself between you and danger so that you can sleep, so that you can rest. This someone, however, isn't a mortal. It's not a human being, but is the angel of the Lord himself watching over those who fear the Lord. About two years ago, I was standing in Illumina. Sometimes I stand at uh, the bar there in the mornings and I'll work. And a lady walked in to Illumina, who I know, she actually attended here uh, in the early days of the church. And um, anyway, so she came in and she uh, sort of walked over towards me and she said, she said, hey, Brian, I don't mean to, to shock you. And she said, I usually don't do this to people. She said, but she said, I have this gift where she said, I can see angels. And I thought, wow, you know, it's interesting. And, and she said, when I walked in, I looked over and the first thing I saw is that standing behind you is a 10 foot tall angel with shining armor. And she said, not only is this uh, angel standing behind you, but he's watching and he's protecting you. He's guarding you. He's looking this way and he's looking that way and he's ready to defend you from anything that threatens you. She said, I just wanted to share that with you. And she walked off and ordered a Danish and a cup of coffee. And I was like, man, I, I, I don't, I've never heard that before. And so I kind of thought about it and I kept working and every now and then I would look over my shoulder. <laughs> and uh, the question is this, do I have a guardian angel that watches over me? And the answer is, I don't know. But what I do know is that I have a God in heaven 
who watches over me because I fear and trust and stand in awe of him. And that's what ultimately matters most. There's much more that we can get to here, but let us suffice to say this, that the God of the universe watches over and cares for you. That's part of what David is saying here. He's watching over and caring for those who fear him. So let me ask you this very quickly. What goes on inside of you when you think about the fact that the God of the universe watches over you, that the God of the universe cares for you? That's the second point. The third point is this. In the wake of David's deliverance, he invites us to take refuge in the Lord. Look at verses 8 and 22. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We don't live in a world, if we're honest, where we have to seek refuge very much. Um, Our cars are watertight, and so when it pours down rain, we're completely dry. Our houses have great roofs. They have air conditioning units. They have uh, heat that works in the wintertime. You know, even when we do go camping, we're oftentimes in a state-of-the-art tent, or maybe we're in a camper that you plug into an electrical outlet that's at the campground. But if you think for just a moment about what this would have meant to David, think about David living out in the fields as a shepherd boy watching over his sheep in the Judean wilderness. Think about David as a soldier marching in battle and sleeping out underneath the open sky. If it started raining or if it started hailing, people would have had to try to find shelter in a hurry, and David would have been very familiar with that. Fortunately, Israel is peppered with caves all over the place, big enough for a human to escape into and even maybe to bring your sheep in with you. But as we know from David's story, it's not just the weather that David had to seek shelter from. He had to seek refuge from a very real enemy who was pursuing him in order to take his life. We know that David sought refuge in the desert from Saul. We know that he sought refuge in the Judean wilderness when he was fleeing. But here, David reminds us that his true refuge is the Lord, that that's his true help. Recently, I I read a a little anecdote by E.M. Bounds. You guys may have read some things by E.M. Bounds before. He's a 19th century uh, writer, theologian. And in this anecdote, he tells a story. He says this. He said, I heard the barking of a number of dogs chasing a deer. Looking at a large open field in front of me, I saw a young fawn making its way across the field and giving signs that its race was almost run. You could envision this happening happening at Barry. It leaped over the rails of the enclosed place and crouched within 10 feet of where I stood. A moment later, two of the hounds came over and the fawn ran in my direction and pushed its head between my legs. I lifted the little thing to my breast and swinging round and round fought off the dogs. Just then I felt that all the dogs in the west could not and would not capture that fawn after its weakness had appealed to my strength. It's a great story. Maybe you aren't being pursued by a pack of wild dogs or even by a jealous king, but you do have an enemy that pursues you. In his first letter, Peter describes our enemy this way. He says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. The apostle John affirms this similar description of the evil one in Revelation 12. He says this, 
for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And then in verse 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. And so what each of these passages make clear is that we have a real enemy, that the evil one, Satan, is waging war against us because he hates the image of God in us. And his primary tools, these passages make clear, are lies and accusations. He wants you to believe that there's no way that God could forgive you. He wants you to believe that you've done it too many times. He wants you to believe there's no way that God can or is willing to forgive you because the thing that you did was too bad or because you simply knew better. But here, David reminds us of one of the most fundamental truths of Christianity. In verse 22, he says this, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. In other words, he buys you out of all of that guilt and sin and shame. None of those, he goes on to say, who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let me read that one more time. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Like the fawn in E.M. Bound's story, God's heart isn't moved towards us because of our strength, but rather his heart is moved towards us because of our weakness. Those who seek refuge in God will not be condemned. The accusations of the evil one fall upon deaf ears. We are safe in him. It's always appropriate when reading the Old Testament and the New Testament to say, where is Jesus in this passage? Or maybe to ask the question, how is Jesus God's answer to this problem that we're faced with? And in the case of Psalm 34, we have a fairly clear answer. Verse 19 and 20 read this way, many of the afflictions of the righteous, that is the bad news, the good news, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. You rem- may remember that in John 19, John quotes this very passage, Psalm 34, in his account of the crucifixion about none of Jesus' bones being broken. But this is after Jesus, if you remember, has been crucified and is hanging dead and lifeless upon the cross. How is that good news for Jesus? The reason that it is good news is because Jesus rose again. And because Jesus rose again, we will too. In our lives, we will have many afflictions. We'll have sickness. We will have cancer. There will be wars. We'll have difficult marriages and challenging relationships. But Jesus' victory over the grave is a reminder that our enemies, sin, Satan, and death have all been defeated by Jesus. We will have afflictions, but in the end, the resurrection will bring fullness and hope. Kathy Keller uh, wrote on this uh, Psalm 34. She said that she and Tim read this passage of Scripture, this psalm, in their wedding, and she said that as young adults, they didn't understand the full scope of the psalm, but then she said, uh, several years ago, as she was dealing with a year-long sickness that resulted in her being in the hospital for a month and multiple surgeries and treatments. She began pondering Psalm 34 and then began to memorize it. And she said that as she memorized it, she found hope in it again. And here's what she writes. She says this, while God may not protect you from every bad thing that might, has, or could happen to you, ultimately through the resurrection, you are safe. 
I will walk through death and come out on the other side, fully healed, restored, saved, and protected. God does not protect us from things that harm us. He protects us as we go through them to the other side of the resurrection, where our real hopes and happiness lie. And she says, now there's a thought that I can cling to. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for rescuing and delivering David. Father, we thank you for delivering us as well. And Father, as we ponder not only David's deliverance, but the deliverance that you have provided and offered to us through your son Jesus, Father, I pray that we would be moved um, to worship you. Father, I pray that we would be moved to bless you, to praise you. I pray that we would be moved uh, to honor and to revere you. Father, I pray that without a doubt that we would ultimately find our refuge and our security in you and in your son Jesus, whose name we pray this morning.